We're going to be turning this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, and we are going to be reading verses 11 through 17, Romans chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. Paul writes, and he has been expressing his regard for these Christians at Rome, he says in verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul, as we established in previous studies, was fond of these Christians. These were Christians, many of whom he had never met before. Paul was not the founder of this church, and yet this church was very close to the heart of of the apostle. We saw last time Paul's prayerful regard for these Christians. In verses 8 through 10, he was thankful to them, thankful to God for them, among other things. And we pick up secondly this morning by considering his edifying intentions for them. Verses 11 through 13. His prayerful regard for them, verses 8 through 10. And now his edifying intentions for them, verses 11 through 13. Paul, as he writes to these Christians, expressing his longing to see them, he says, for I long to see you. Paul longed to be with these Christians, not simply to hang out with them for light, trivial talk, He longed to see them for at least two reasons. First, he longed to see them so that he might fortify them. We see that in verse 11. Here's what he says. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. What does Paul mean when he speaks of imparting to these Christians some spiritual gift? Does This means he was intending to bestow on them the supernatural gifts of the Spirit by laying on of hands, by laying his hands on them, as in Acts chapter 8, verses 15 through 19. Acts chapter 19, verse 6, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. Or was he referring to his teaching so as to impart to them some blessing that would strengthen their faith in Christ. 
And I believe that because its emphasis is on preaching and expositing the gospel, it seems more likely that he was referring to his blessing them with his teaching gift in order to encourage them in their faith. And it's noteworthy that although these Christians were thriving in their faith, so much so that their faith was being, as Paul puts it, being proclaimed throughout the whole world, and so much so that Paul was thankful for them, Paul's desire, nonetheless, was to visit with them so as to strengthen them. And clearly, the lesson for us is this, that regardless of our healthy buoyant spiritual lives, regardless of how healthy and vibrant we might be in our walk with the Lord, we're never beyond the need for further strengthening, for further nurturing in our faith. We never get beyond the point where enough is enough as far as our need for instruction and growth in Christ is concerned. So here was a group of Christians. This group of Christians, they were thriving in their faith. Their faith was being spread throughout the whole world. People were impressed with their profession of faith in Christ. And yet Paul was saying that he wanted to visit with them so as to strengthen them. And no doubt because of the pagan ungodly culture in which they lived, these Christians at Rome needed to be encouraged, they needed to be strengthened in their faith. Because if you know anything about Rome, Rome was a very libertine society. Rome was a city that was marked by all kinds of ungodliness. So Paul's desire to visit, to strengthen them, was quite in order. Paul saw the need to strengthen these Christians even though they were already walking with the Lord. Second, Paul longed to see these Christians at Rome that he might fellowship with them. That he might fellowship with them. And in explaining his intention to edify and strengthen them, he says there in verse 12, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. What I find noteworthy here is that although Paul was a man of enormous spiritual stature, although he had the high honor of being an apostle of the Lord Jesus, Paul clearly did not consider himself a super spiritual lone ranger Christian who had no need for fellowship with other believers. Indeed, from such passages as Romans chapter 15, 23, 24, Romans 15, 30 to 32, Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, as well as chapter 4 and verse 1, we see that Paul loved to be with other believers. He loved to fellowship with God's people. And it's really a serious mistake then for any believer to discount the need for Christian fellowship, which is precisely what many a Christian in our time does. They see no need for church. They see the church as having no relevance in their lives. They see no need to join with other Christians for corporate worship, for mutual edification, as Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 commands. 
They see no need for learning and growing together in the word of God, according to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, as well as Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. For them, being Christian is all a matter of personal Bible study. It's all a matter of listening to sermons, listening to sermons online. You know, you'll hear sometimes people say, you know, I mean... Just give me the sermon. Just give me a copy of the sermon. <laughs> and what happens is that for these Christians, Christian living is a lone ranger affair. Christian living is reduced to personal Bible study. It's reduced to listening to sermons. But hear, hear me, my friends. Listening to sermons is not good enough. Listening to sermons cannot take the place of Christian fellowship. And it shows a gross misunderstanding of what church is all about when persons would come to the conclusion that all I need to hear when I come to church is a good sermon. What is the purpose of church? We have to ask then. And it seems to me from reading the word of God, it is very clear from reading the word of God that church is far more than coming to receive something. Church, my friends, involves interacting with God's people. It means fellowship with, fellowshipping with the saints. It means mutual ministry. For here's what the Apostle Paul says. Paul says, for I long to see you. Paul desired a presence. Paul desired to be in company with other Christians. And Paul wanted not only to impart to them the truth of God's word, but he was anticipating from them a blessing in return. Why do we come to church? We come to church not just to hear sermons. We come to church not simply to receive from the Lord, but we come to church to invest in others, to fellowship with others, to be a means of strength and blessing to others. So we have Paul's prayerful regard for these Christians. We have his edifying intentions for them. But in the third place, Paul informs these Roman Christians of his evangelistic ambitions among them. His evangelistic ambitions among them. We see that in verses 13 through 17. Paul writes there, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul desired to visit with these Christians that he might win converts among them through the preaching of the gospel. And he expresses this evangelistic ambition under the metaphor of reaping, of harvesting, as our Lord Jesus did in John chapter 4 and verse 36. We recall our Lord Jesus saying to his disciples, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are white already to harvest. What was he referring to? The harvesting of souls. Now in verses 14 through 16, Paul makes three statements regarding his gospel ministry. Three statements concerning his gospel ministry. And the first concerns his indebtedness to preach the gospel. His indebtedness to preach the gospel. Here's what Paul says, verse 14. He says this, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. 
In a word, Paul is saying here that he owes it to people from all walks of life, from every strata of society. He owes it to the educated, he owes it to the uneducated, the cultured, the uncultured. He owes it to one and all to preach the gospel of God's saving grace in Christ to them. Beloved, this should be our mindset. This should be the attitude of mind, of heart that you and I have. The fact is, it is not left to us to decide whether or not to tell people about Christ, as we have been seeing this morning, and as we have been saying in these studies in Sunday school, it is not left to us to decide whether or not we are going to witness. We are under orders. We are under obligation. 1 Corinthians 16 and 17, Paul says, If I do this thing willingly, speaking of his task of preaching the gospel, of witnessing, he says, If I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, he says, In any case, a stewardship of the gospel has been entrusted to me. And Paul goes on to say this, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. That outside of Jesus Christ, people are lost and perishing, headed for an eternal separation from God in hell. A place of torment should impel us to warn them from the, to flee from the wrath which is to come. It should impel us to warn them, to urge them to flee to the refuge that is in Christ Indeed, Paul alluded to this sense of obligation to evangelize the unsaved when he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Paul says there, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He said in verse 10, Wherefore we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to whether it is good or bad. And then he says this, Knowing therefore the terror, the dread, the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So Paul makes clear, first of all, his indebtedness to preach the gospel. He's indebted to one and all. He's indebted to the Greeks. He's indebted to the barbarians. That is to say, he's indebted to the uneducated, the educated, the cultured, the uncultured. He is indebted to people from all walks of life. Not only does Paul cite his indebtedness to preach the gospel to all, but second, he cites his readiness to preach the gospel. Here's what he says, verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And that word eager in the Greek literally means passionate in advance, passionate in advance. The idea here is this, that ever before Paul visited Rome, ever before he set foot on Roman soil, he was already excited, he was already fired up, he was already on, in zeal for the Lord about the prospect of preaching the gospel in that place. Paul preaching the gospel to the unsaved was not just a matter of sheer duty. It was not a matter of drudgery. It was a matter of delight. It was his passion. Paul had a consuming burden for the lost. He yearned to see people come to Christ, and so should you and I. 
Now, what are we to make of Paul's eagerness? It's very interesting when we look at the text. Paul wants to visit these Christians at Rome. Mark you, they are Christians, they are believers in Christ. Paul is eager to visit with these Christians. And what does he want to do in visiting these Christians at Rome? He wants to preach the gospel to them. And naturally, the question arises, if these believers, if these people at Rome are believers in Christ, if they are Christians, why then would Paul want to preach the gospel to them? Indeed, he had described them in verse 6 as belonging to Jesus Christ. In verse 7, he characterized them as those loved by God. In verse 8, as those whose faith was being proclaimed in all the world. These were clearly Christians, these were clearly people who knew the Lord. In fact, Paul says of them that their faith, that is to say their personal faith in Jesus Christ, was a matter of public discussion. It was being broadcast throughout the world. Why then would Paul want to take the gospel to them? Why then would he want to go there to preach the gospel to them? You see, Paul wanted to preach the gospel to these believers because, here's the point, the gospel, the gospel is far more than simply the initial presentation of an evangelistic message to the unsaved. The gospel is far more than an evangelistic message that is geared toward winning people for Christ. The gospel involves far more than what the writer of Hebrews speaks of in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 as the elementary doctrines of Christ. The gospel includes deeper truths related to salvation, deeper truths related to the person of Christ, what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 2, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14 referred to as the solid food for the mature. The gospel is deep. The gospel is not just John 3.16. The gospel concerns the deep things of God. It concerns the depths of the riches of Christ. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 11 verse 33, as he surveys the vast vista of God's redeeming grace in Christ, he says this, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, it talks about how the church, which is a product of the gospel, is the church manifests what Paul describes as the manifold wisdom of God. The gospel is deep. And Paul's desire then was to preach to these Christians the deeper truths of the gospel. He wanted to lay out for them the practical implications of God's saving grace in Christ. You see... Big mistake, big, big mistake we have in our churches is this. We preach the gospel. Persons are brought to faith in Christ. We never teach them the implications of what it means to be truly saved, of what it means to be a disciple of Christ, of what it means to manifest the transforming grace of God in their hearts and lives at the workplace, at school, and so on and so forth. Regarding his evangelistic intentions in Rome, then Paul cites his indebtedness to preach the gospel. He says, I'm under obligation to preach. He speaks of his readiness to preach the gospel. He says, I'm eager. I'm, I'm like yesterday, I'm, I'm ready. But look thirdly at verse 16, his fearlessness in preaching the gospel. His fearlessness in preaching the gospel. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He says this, for I am not ashamed of 
the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now that's quite an assertive statement for Paul to have made. And why so? We have to understand something about the place for which he was headed. And when we think of Rome, that place where Paul desired to preach the gospel, it was quite a thing for him to have made such an assertive statement as this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Rome in Paul's day was the most powerful city. It was the most influential city. But listen, it was one of the most ungodly cities of the world. You've heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome. And this was very much true because Rome actually ruled the world. It was a vast empire. Rome was a symbol of strength. It was a symbol of power. In fact, the very word Rome, Rome, the Greek word Rome actually means what? Strength. Rome was the epitome of strength. It was a symbol of power, of might, and given the socio-political as well as cultural context of Rome, there were aspects of the gospel of which Paul might have been tempted to be ashamed. You say, what are you talking about? For example... The gospel centers on a man who was crucified. A man who was proclaimed as king, a man who was proclaimed as the divine Lord. In Roman culture, such a message would be deemed ludicrous. A big joke. Crucified, listen, crucifixion was reserved for whom? For common criminals, for slaves. Crucifixion was so horrible, a punishment was so horrible, a death, that the Roman government did not crucify their own people. It was reserved for the lowest of the lowest. And for Paul to go into Rome, Rome the symbol of strength, Rome the symbol of power, and to preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto Greeks foolishness, was the heights of what we would call ridiculousness. It was ludicrous, it was a big scandal. And yet Paul, in the face of popular Hatred of the cross in the face of popular disdain for the cross. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It gives us encouragement, doesn't it? Because we are living in an age. We are living in a culture. We are living in a country of gross ungodliness. It is a culture in which the things of God, in which the things of Christ are dashed to the ground. It is a culture in which we as Christians, if we are not fortified by the grace of God, we could cower, we could buckle, and we would find ourselves being ashamed of the gospel. Paul well knew that the elites and intelligentsia regarded followers of Christ and their preaching of the gospel with contempt. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 13. He knew well that among the Greeks and Romans, the preaching of the cross was deemed 
foolishness, moriah. It was moronic. It was nonsensical. It, it, it was the cross that people stubbed at as utter nonsense, 1 Corinthians 1.18. He knew well that for the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block. And here it was, Paul was going to, the, to Rome where there were Jews and Romans. And Paul is saying, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This leads us to consider why was it that Paul was not ashamed of the gospel? That's a good question because if we can figure why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, then we might find some motivation, we might find some encouragement to really stand boldly and to proclaim this gospel. And Paul tells us certain facts about this gospel. First of all, Paul tells us he's not ashamed of the gospel because, listen, the gospel reflects the power of God. The gospel reflects the power of God. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the dunamis, it is the dynamite of God, as we would say today. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The word power in this context speaks of the limitless, surpassing, supernatural power of God that rescues one from the deadly effects of sin, that power by which God imparts eternal life to lost, dead souls. It is that power by which sinners are transformed and renewed that power by which you are enabled to turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, according to Acts chapter 26, verse 18, Paul was not ashamed of this gospel, knowing that regardless of what others might think, this gospel was charged with divine power. He knew by way of conviction that this gospel, as he puts it in, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 30, this gospel represents not the word of men, but that it is in truth the word of God which works in those who believe. Paul knew that. He knew that this gospel held the promise of life after death. It afforded immortality through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew that. He knew that this gospel was operative in his own life, in his own life. Why? Because he tells us how that before he was a blasphemer, he was a Christ-hater, how he used to waste the church of God, he used to put Christians to death. And he, by his own admission, says this gospel transformed his life, making him transforming him from a Christ-hater to a Christ-lover to one who loved Christ and served Christ in his church. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel reflects God's power. But second, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel reveals God's righteousness. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. Here's what he says, verse 17. He says, for in it, that is in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And at this point, Paul comes to the first major sub-theme of his epistle to the Romans, which is this, the righteousness of God. As suggested in verse 1, Paul, as we saw, put it clearly in, in the very first verse, what he was all about, what the gospel was all about. The gospel was 
he was the overarching subject of the epistle to the Romans was the gospel. And here we are told in verse 17 that in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now stop to think of that for a moment. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel implies this. It implies that it is not possessed by, nor is it naturally known by the unsaved man or woman. It has to be revealed. It has to come from outside the sinner. It is alien to the sinner. The sinner does not possess it. But the question is, what is this righteousness of God? And I submit to you it means at least two things might be more. But the righteousness of God to begin with is that right standing. It is that right relationship that God establishes between himself and the sinner. Also, it is that very righteousness of God which he imputes, that is, places to the account of those who trust Christ. But on what basis does he do that? On the basis, of course, of Christ's atoning work, Christ's death on the cross. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become, we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God means this, that where the sinner is concerned, the sinner has no righteousness of his own. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 verse 10, and following that there's none that is righteous, there's none that is good. And here's the point, I want to say this this morning. Were it possible, this is some, an illustration I use from time to time. Were it possible, listen carefully, were it possible that you never committed one act of sin from this point going forward? What do you think would happen? Would God let you into heaven? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And the question is why? Because God requires and God calls to account the sins that are past. You ask the question, why cannot God accept my goodness, however hard I try, however sincere I am? Here's why. Because the word of God teaches that those good works are coming from a nature that is sinful. The psalmist David, David a godly man, David a righteous man before God. He said this, I was born in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And that is why Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 tells us that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in his sight. Why are our good righteousnesses as filthy rags in his sight? Because they are coming from a nature. They are coming from a heart that has not been renewed. They are coming from a heart that has been polluted, that has been contaminated with the germ of sin. Let me say this, baptism cannot cleanse that sin. Church membership cannot cleanse that sin. Taking communion cannot cleanse that sin. Not all the religious activities of the world, however sincerely intentioned you might be in participating with them, can ever cleanse you from the contamination of, and defilement of sin. And so God finds a solution. 
And the solution is this. God looks at the sinner in his filthiness, in his wretchedness, in his ugliness. Yes, you might not like to think of that about yourself, but that's the truth. That's true of me. That's true of you. The Bible says there is absolutely none righteous, no, not one. Somebody says, wait a minute. I, you don't know me. That doesn't fit me. Why? Because I'm a good person. I sit on this board, this humanitarian, for this humanitarian cause. I give to the poor. I become involved in my community. I'm concerned about bettering people's lives. I'm not that kind of person. And I would say, man, that's good. It's wonderful. Would that there were more people like that in this world. It's good. It's hard to find people like that. People who are selfless. People who are generous. People who are pious. But here's the point. The point is this. That when it comes to the holy and righteous God of heaven. Your goodness. My goodness. Is never and can never be good enough. To stand before the holy and righteous God of heaven. So back to what we are saying. Here's what God did. God, my friend, he delivered up his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the hands of cruel, wicked men who crucified him. He suffered the most shameful, horrible, scandalous death. And what God tells us in Romans chapter 3 verse 24 is this, that he did this to show his justice. He did this to show his righteousness. To the end that he might be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. So here's what happens. Having put Jesus on the cross, having delivered him upon the cross, the Bible tells us that during that whole situation, Christ, Christ took on our sins. And what did God do? God took our iniquities, he laid them on the Lord Jesus, and then he took the righteousness of Christ, and he did what? He placed it to our account, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. No, we don't get to heaven on our own righteousness. We don't get to heaven on our own goodness. For by grace are you saved through faith, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. My friends, here this morning, as we draw to a close, if you are determined to go the way of working your way to heaven, you say this, this preacher doesn't know what he's talking about. God knows my heart. Yes, God knows your heart, but God also has his word. And God says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be declared righteous, in his sight. Why? Because here's the point. Here's what James says in James 2 verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends, fails in one point, he has become guilty. Guilty of all. The grim truth, beloved, is this, that no one on the face of the earth has the power to keep God's law perfectly. For Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 tells us, For there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. 
But praise be to God, the saving gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ is this, that in the gospel, a righteousness, the righteousness of God is revealed. It is revealed. Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified, that is declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Hence, John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not believe shall not see life. Whoever does not obey shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. You want to know how to get right with God? You look at the gospel. You don't look at yourself. You don't look at your heart. You don't look at your good works. You don't look at your sincerity. You don't look at your good intention. You look to the gospel and you look to Christ, your righteousness. That's what Paul is saying. And he says it's revealed from faith to faith. That is to say, it's all, salvation is all a matter of faith beginning. Faith right to the end. The life of the Christian begins in faith. We are saved by faith, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And that saving righteousness of God continues in faith is underscored by what the word of God says. In Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says, The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is a life that continues by faith. The righteousness of God continues by faith. We don't now begin to work for salvation. We don't now begin to do good works in order to be saved. We do not obey in order to be saved. We do not do good works in order to be saved. We do good works because we are saved. And we don't fight for dear life to keep our salvation because once we come to Christ, that, is, that, that deal is done. That deal is done. We become in Christ, the righteousness of God. So as I close this morning, I call your attention to this, that the saving power of the gospel and the saving righteousness of God, the saving power of the gospel and the saving righteousness of God must be individually and personally appropriated. How? By faith. By faith. Note verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Here it comes, for everyone who believes. Notice singular, for everyone who believes. What this tells us is this, that salvation is a personal matter. Salvation is a personal transaction. No one can exercise faith for you. You talk to some people, you see, and they say, you know, I was baptized. My little, I was baptized as an infant. No, you did not believe. You did not believe. You must come to Christ personally. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said to Nicodemus, the late Billy Graham used to say this, God has no grandchildren. You must come by faith for yourself. You must come personally. 
He says it's a power of salvation for everyone who believes. And may I suggest this to you, that regardless of the magnitude of your sins, regardless of how deep died in sin you might be, regardless of the sin, the gospel has the power to cleanse and transform and save and make you a brand new creation. But that belief must be personal. I ask this morning, where do you stand in relation to this saving gospel of the grace of God? Where do you stand with respect to the righteousness of God? Do you consider yourself a good person? Have you been working for dear life to get into heaven? Let me say this. That's an exercise in futility because nobody gets there by working. Persons get to heaven by trusting. By trusting in the Lamb of God that was slain, the Lord Jesus. And that in looking to him, in turning away from sin, in turning away from self, in turning away from your sincerity, from your good works, you lay your all on Christ. You say, listen. Christ, I come to you as my Savior. I'm trusting in you and in you alone for salvation. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And the glorious promise of the word of God is this. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Here's the glorious news. You will be saved. You will be saved. Trust you would do that if you have not yet.